for us as we contemplate what I'm calling strategies for middle years. Um, so let's pray that we'll dive in. Father, we are grateful for your mercy. We're grateful that you are a perfect, all-sufficient Heavenly Father. Your discipline is always correct. It is always on time. It is always in the appropriate measure. It always has our greater good as its end and goal. And we confess that as human parents, it is, it is often the case that we are none of those things, or we are only some of those things part of the time. So we pray that your grace would abound, that you would grant to us wisdom. We also pray and, and confess that as we as we enter into such a subject, we recognize that your word tells us much that we need to obey, obey and take to heart, and, and then at the same time, there are many things for which we will be dependent upon the cultivation of wisdom. And so we pray that you would introduce to us and impress upon us the, the means that you have given in your word for the cultivation of wisdom, that we would pursue those means, that we would pursue the safety of a multitude of counselors, that we would seek the fear of you as the beginning of all wisdom and understanding, that we would lean not on our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledge you, and that you will make both our paths and the paths of our children straight. We pray that you would be honored and glorified as we seek as a, a community of faith uh, to train and instruct and disciple and raise our children to your glory, and we pray that that would bear much fruit in our, in our midst and in our homes. We ask this in Christ. Amen. So as we contemplate what I'm calling the middle years, and I'll refresh us in a moment for those maybe who were not part of the last lesson, how I'm defining those terms in terms of middle years. Last time we talked about the younger years, and I'm going to not necessarily rehash, but to refamiliarize ourselves, remind us of some of the things that we considered with respect to younger children, because many of those things continue. Just because a young boy or a young girl turns 8 or 9 or 12 or 15 or whatever the age is, doesn't mean that the principles of instruction and correction have simply gone away. <clears throat> um, can we hit the lights? That might help a little bit. <clears throat> it's still going to be somewhat washed because of the, the windows. <clears throat> but in terms of our strategies for middle years, I took for a, a, a text for us to ponder last time from Colossians 1, where the apostle, writing to the church at Colossae, says, this is my goal. In fact, he calls it his ambition. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, our goal as parents, if we're going to, t I, I suggested that we sort of co-opt this verse, even though this is an apostolic admonition, Paul speaking as an apostle and as a pastor and seeking the spiritual maturity of the people in the Colossian church. However, this is a praiseworthy goal for us as parents. By the time a son or a daughter leaves our home, we make it our ambition to present them mature in Christ. Not as mature as they will be, 
at the end of their lives, I hope, but have a degree of maturity nonetheless. And so with that, there is a, there's a means. Paul is, says, I'm struggling with all of my energy that he powerfully works within me. And, and what Paul says is the means is that he warns. It's that Greek word from which the concept nuthetic counseling comes. It's the idea of confronting, admonishing, rebuking. It is instruction, but typically of the negative sort. The instruction that says, don't do that. Or here's the consequence of it. But then also, there's an affirmative, teaching our sons and daughters. We back up to the text. Paul says, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone. So Paul says, within the church of Jesus Christ, there's a paradigm in which both correction and instruction are necessary. Now, arguing maybe from the greater to the lesser, if among adults who are in Christ, perhaps have walked with Christ for a number of years, Paul says there's a necessity with that brother or sister to use both correction and instruction, then how much more is that, will that be necessary for our much younger, and some, in many, many cases, unregenerate children? Because all of our children come to us unregenerate, right? They all come unregenerate. And we, we pray and we seek to see them established in the kingdom. Now, one of the things that I, I, I modified this graphic, not the substance of it, but the color of it, trying to make it more visible on this wall. I'm not sure how much you'll be able to see it. It was on a white background before. But the concept is, is, is this, and I try to think visually sometimes in the way that I present things. There is, you'll see two flags, the orange and the green, the colors are not significant other than they're just different. The, on the, the top flag, corrective discipline. You see it starts larger, and over time it becomes smaller. But it never comes to a point, it never comes to zero. There is always, 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 to the day that we draw our last breath, hopefully we will see there's still a need for us to be corrected, especially from the scriptures. There will always will be things that we were not quite right about in our thinking, in our behavior, and so forth. Then on the, the other end, or the bottom part of that, is instruction and teaching. This is the formative discipline. And again, it's never zero. It doesn't start at a point. But, I mean, with your six-month-old, there's some instruction that you can give, but, I mean, you're not sitting down and having a full discussion and giving, you know, a discourse and reasons, and here's my three-point argument, son, for why that's, you know, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't kick mommy while she's changing your diaper and thrash your back and, and do all those kinds of things. And, and if he could speak, he'd say, Dad, I'm six months old. I don't understand what you're, what you're saying. So again, there's, there's less place for instruction there and, and a greater need for correction. So we talked about that last week. Now, you'll notice in the middle, the blue arrow running from left to right, is maturity. Maturity. It's not necessarily an age, although at some risk I did put some age categories in here just for the sake of discussion. Not because the scriptures give us three firm categories. We don't find that there. Uh, this is somewhat a, a natural revelation observation. Uh, there's a reason that I have the little brackets, you know, the zero to eight, and the 8 to 15, there's a reason there's an overlap here. Now, is that overlap one year, two years, three years? I don't know. Depends on your kids. Uh, also depends on you as a parent. 
Because if you're very consistent here, disciplining and training, you may be reaching those middle years, you know, more like here. Um, on the other hand, if these things are new, you've started late or you haven't been diligent, you may be finding yourself with a 10-year-old that really needs more of this in terms of we need more correction because we're struggling with just ordinary, basic, day-to-day -day obedience. Does that make sense? So that, that's the idea, is that corrective discipline ought to diminish over time. Now, I've had I been really trying to be super accurate, this would not have been a straight line. It might have gone something like this, right? Um, and the same with, with instruction and teaching. But I, I think you get, you get the point. The main idea is, is that corrective discipline over time diminishes and formative discipline increases. Now, you notice here in the middle years, what, what would we kind of generally observe about the ratio of corrective discipline to formative discipline? They're, they're, they're near equalizing, right? Um, you know, again, we're looking at a range because between, and again, just these are just ballparks, but between 8 and 15 years of age with your average boy or your average girl, a lot of change, isn't it? There's a, there's a big difference between an 8-year-old and a 15-year-old, or at least there should be, right? Um, sadly, maybe that's less the case these days, but there, there ought to be. But the other thing I want to il illustrate here is that there really ought to be a progression of maturity. The, one of the goals as our parents is progress. Now, progress is not always linear, and especially if you're looking at it on a day-to-day -day basis, it's like looking at a stock ticker, and you can be, oh no, you know, we're, everything is tanking. But if you zoom back out and look at the, the Dow Jones over a period of time, any financial analyst will tell you, it, linear regression, it, it's an upward slope, but at any given day, or even any given quarter, it might show downward. But we're looking at growth over the long term. I want to read uh, an extended section from Proverbs, beginning in chapter 2 through the middle of chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn here. Again, we're thinking in terms of this ratio of correction and instruction, of corrective discipline and formative discipline becoming closer together. This is the season when, when we are in earnest as parents shaping minds. Now again, that begins before this middle, these middle years, but we're right in the thick of it as parents. By the time a boy or girl is eight years old, um, or, or thereabouts, it might be six or seven, it might be nine or ten, but by the time we reach this, this stage of, of development, there really is a greater capacity to begin to understand more complex things. Ethics, morals, not just that we don't do something as a family, but why? Not only that something is wrong, according to God's word, but why? What are the consequences of this? So let's read in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My son, and this is a father speaking to his son. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight 
and raise your voice for understanding if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Now notice something before I go on. Notice that the first four verses were if, 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 if. For you grammarians, that's called a conditional clause or a conditional statement. Notice what follows after that, beginning in verse 5, is then. If, then. Wisdom is not guaranteed to us. It's conditioned upon certain attitudes, behaviors, words, study, diligence. If you seek it like silver, verse 4, if you search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth. And from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Now let's just stop for a minute before I read the rest of it. At what age would it be appropriate to begin having this kind of conversation with your children? Yeah. As early as possible is, exa- is exactly the answer. Early and often, right? We're not waiting till a certain age. I've had the chart back up here. We're not waiting until, okay, son's your eighth birthday. Now it's time to talk, talk some, some serious things. Hopefully we're talking about these things. But there is a recognition here that there is an increasing and progressive capacity for a child to begin to understand these things. But notice some of the scope of what's covered, just in what I've read so far. One, there's a a condition. Isn't that a lesson for all of life? Son, there are promises that God has given to you. Some of them are unconditional. Some of them are not unconditional. Wisdom is not a natural right. Wisdom is not something that's going to be downloaded from the heavens for you. Wisdom is cultivated. Wisdom is earned. Wisdom is learned. There is a process. The Bible, God is the source of all wisdom, but God uses means. God is the source, but he's not a cloud from which you download something. He he cultivates in you wisdom. But notice something else. The father here, Solomon, is upfront and honest with his son about the nature and the presence and the reality of evil and sin and wickedness in this world. See, isn't there a temptation sometimes, and the, the right kind of parental impulse to protect our children? Right? We don't want to see them defiled. We don't want to see them 
physically harmed or spiritually harmed or emotionally harmed, and sometimes that means we don't talk to them about things that the Scriptures talk to them about. I, I, I get the question with some degree of regularity um, about even just reading the Scriptures together as a family, in your family worship. Uh, do you, the question is, do we avoid certain Scriptures because they're kind of PG-13 or NC-17, you know? There's, but, but, and my answer has consistently been, no, I don't think you avoid anything. I think you read through the Scriptures systematically. And I think God, in God's wisdom, there will be questions that come up. Sometimes there are questions that as a parent you go, I hadn't really planned on having that conversation just yet. But you're able to give an age-appropriate answer and, and also to demonstrate two things. Number one, God's Word speaks to a whole range of human condition. It speaks to everything. And, and, and the Scriptures are honest about the nature and the effects and consequences of sin. And we get to, sort of like a tour guide, by the Spirit's help, we can say, son, observe on your right, here's sin and folly and all of its consequences. And on your left is a path of righteousness and justice and goodness, and see how God blesses that. Other times, we can say that from the Scriptures, sometimes indeed the wicked do prosper, son, in God's wisdom. Sometimes we don't understand that, but sometimes the wicked do, in fact, prosper, but only in this age. Only in this age. And sometimes the righteous suffer, and suffer deeply and profoundly. But you know what? It's only in this age. In the age to come, all of those sorrows will be healed. I just wanted to point out, before we go further, that there is, and I'm, I'm, I'll come back to it if I don't, please somebody remind me. I, I think there is an admonition to parents in Proverbs chapter 2 to be deliberate about speaking to our children of unpleasant things. We have to prepare them for the world as it actually is. And despite the impulse that we might have to shield and protect and guard them from everything, we, we, we cannot do that forever. I'm not saying you talk to your three-year-old about transgenderism, but the reality of the world is that there are wicked people who have wicked designs and evil intentions, and our children need to understand that. Um, I should have looked it up and put it in my notes. It just now has occurred to me. Um, men like J.R. Tolkien, R. Tolkien, uh, Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, talked about, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis does too, about the, the necessity of fairy tales. And I should have looked up the quote. I think it's, it's C.S. Lewis. And he said, basically, the, the, the substance is, is, children already know there's dragons in the world. What they need to know is that there is, is a knight who slays the dragon. That's what they need to know. And so, if you read back through some of the old ones, like, you ever read Grimm's fairy tales? There's a good reason. It's called Grimm. <laughs> it, it's, it's dark. But these were designed for children, because children intuitively know their own sin, but they also recognize there, there is darkness in this world, and we can't hide them entirely from that. So let's, let's continue to verse 16 of chapter 2. So... You will be delivered from the forbidden woman. Dad, I'm only eight. You know, I'm only ten. Well, it's never too soon, son, daughter, to begin thinking 
about the consequences of sin and how God has designed this universe to work in a particular way. And when men and women rebel against that natural order, there are significant consequences for that. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Dad, I'm only 12. Yes, son, and the sooner you internalize this, the better. The sooner you recognize that with respect to your body, God has put boundaries and regulations and statutes that govern our human sexuality. And for a young child, we don't have to get any more explicit than that, do we? But we're beginning to train them. The, wor the world that you live in is a world that God has made, and God has designed it to work a certain way. And there are people who rebel against that. And it may appear in, in, for a time that they prosper, but those who rebel against God never in the end prosper. And so we begin to we talk about these, these kinds of things. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Chapter 3, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. If there's a single lesson that we can press in upon our children, and I think particularly in these middle years, it's not to lean on your own understanding. Trust the wisdom of God. Trust His Word. Trust your parents to help interpret the world for you more faithfully and more accurately. Not because we're all-knowing, not because we're sinless and perfect, but because God has given to us a greater degree of wisdom and experience than you have because you're 10 or you're 14 or whatever that the case may be. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father delight, or the father, as a father delight, as a father the son in whom he delights. Can't even read a sentence. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, and the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. 
She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Now, I urge you to to meditate upon these passages of Scripture and and ask from the text a few important and pertinent questions. Number one, ask yourself from the, from the text, what are what is examples of the range of kinds of things that parents need to give their children instruction about? We see here both warning, correction, admonition, reproof, rebuke, and also formative in teaching, don't we? we see a, in fact, we see a pretty good mixture of the two. And I haven't counted up in terms of the number of verses or you know how many warnings versus how many are positive instruction, but I think just, just the first kind of heft of it, it feels like pretty equal weight, doesn't it? Um, notice, ask yourself, to, to what degree should we speak to our children about the, the dangers and perils in this world? And to what degree of, can I say, specificity? To what, to what degree of, of, of detail? Well, you want to see from the text, it's not explicit. Son, be cautious of an adulterous woman and notice something that, that marks her. She has smooth words. Now, our young men need to know that, don't they? And they don't need to know that when they're 18. They need to know that early, early on. And this goes both ways, too. The adulterous man also comes with smooth words, right? So this is not specific to one sex. It's adaptable. I mean, we have to we have to contextualize that. But think through, and and I, for the sake of time, I, I I'm not going to be doing an exposition of this. Although I think there potentially a whole sermon series right here, um, in in terms of the kinds of things that we ought to be th- teaching. But my, my, my point in reading these to you today is, is to provoke you to think that certainly by these middle years and in these middle years, this is a good starting place for kind of almost a scope and sequence for us as parents. I don't tell you to wait until the middle years, but I, I do think that this is going to be the real work of those middle years. Hopefully... In the early years, we're laying a foundation of simple obedience, of cultivating you know, what, what um, uh, J.C. Ryle called a, a, a blind obedience, a simple obedience to parents, where children learn at a very early age to prefer mom and dad's opinion over their own because they recognize mom and dad speak true things to me. And the source of mom and dad's truth is the Word of God and an experience and wisdom that is vetted and filtered through the Word of God. I'm going to speak today about imperatives and opportunities. Again, broad categories, but imperatives and opportunities. What I mean by that simply is, here are the things that we absolutely must do as parents. Non-negotiable. There are other things that I, I 
I could make a case they should be on the imperative list. But I think prefer to think of these as golden opportunities, wonderful opportunities for us as parents to cultivate certain things in our children from the youngest of age. But it's going to be in this, these middle years that are, that are very formative in shaping these kinds of things. So let's think about instruction. Again, this is the imperatives. These are these non-negotiables. In the, in the middle years, affirmative teaching takes a larger role. We saw that in, in the little graphic earlier, but, but again, the, the, the older, more mature our children get, the more capacity they have to receive, process, understand, remember instruction. So this needs to be from the Scriptures, but we're also, of course, instructing them in other things. They need to be not only Christians, but they need to be good citizens. So we need to teach them. We need to study history and, and biology and mathematics and all these other things that, that also can be helpful. But our, our, our emphasis is on affirmative teaching, but taking a larger role. So when they're very young, I mean, the reality is sometimes, I remember this when our kids were little, coming home and, and Gina would say, I think all I've done is wipe bottoms and spank bottoms all day. It's all I've done. And, and it can feel like that sometimes. And because all it's done is, is the, the maintenance and correction. But as those children grow, we need to begin in our minds intentionally as parents to begin more and more of the affirmative instruction. This is the Deuteronomy 6. As you're walking, when you get up in the morning, as you walk, down, walk by the way, and as you lay down at night, Paul's, or the, Moses isn't giving three specific times, like uh, you, know, you face east and you pray three times a day. He's saying, in the whole rhythm of your life, at every occasion, be speaking about the things of God, training your children, forming their minds, causing, provoking them to think about the world as God has actually made it. The focus remains upon obedience and humble submission to parents. If, if you find yourself in these middle years and you haven't yet kind of gained that, then come back and kind of apply some of the things that we looked at with respect to the younger years. Because the, the longer you wait, the more difficult it's going to be. Remember one of our principles? The earlier you start, the less force of correction is necessary. I mean, it's just the reality. The goal of our instruction is, is ultimately the formation of wisdom. See, that's, that's what we find in Proverbs 2 and 3, for example. It's not accumulated knowledge for the sake of knowledge. It's wisdom, discretion, discernment. Notice some, excuse me, some of the language that is used in Proverbs 2 and 3. Words like understanding, wisdom, Knowledge, discretion. Um, the, these are the kinds of things that we want to both teach and also exemplify to our children. Further, with respect to instruction, the focus is, is, is particularly on the Word of God. When, in the very younger years, most of our commands will be do this because daddy said so. Or do this because mommy said so. As our children mature, it is right for us to give further explanations. Now that doesn't happen every single incident. Sometimes 
this just needs to get done, <laughs> we can talk later about an explanation. Or this just need this behavior needs to stop. And we can talk about why later, but right now it's because daddy said so, because mommy said so. That's it. But we want to be willing to show them from the scriptures not just what is wise, but how did we get it? Because we're, we're wanting ultimately to train them not to be dependent upon us for all their answers, but learn how to find these things. We do this in school. I mean, we, we want to, to train our children how to research and how to study and how to, how to learn things on their own. Well, we want to do the same thing with the Scriptures. And so these, you know, some systematic readings, some uh, regular family worship in your homes, these are all very ordinary but very powerful tools to demonstrate to our children, how are we getting these things? How are we learning these things? And then also being an honest, again, as, as the older our kids get, a growing degree of honesty with them about our own mistakes. You know, I, one of my phrases is, ask me how I know that. <laughs> you know, this is a really bad idea. Ask me how I know. Because your dad's done that. You know, um, what was the, what's the, the, the phrase from Dave Ramsey? I've done stupid with zeros on it. Something like that, you know? I've, I've made those mistakes. I don't think that's exactly what he said, but something along those lines. We also want to see a, an, increased, an increasing emphasis on self-control. Again, it's not... When, when, the, when the two-year-old has a meltdown, well, we can deal with that, and it may be a fit, but we, there's kind of a, an expectation that that little boy or girl is still growing in self-control. But when the eight-year-old does it, there should be a growing emphasis, a growing expectation, frankly, of self-control. When, when something happens and, and you're told, no, we're not doing that, or we can't do that today, and there's the meltdown. Or it's, maybe it's not the outward, you know, flopping on the ground, full-blown fit, but it's, it's a surly attitude. It's, it's the withdrawing from the rest of the family. And, and you have to be able to discern, that's, that's not good. That's an indication that you're not submitting yourself to the government of this home. You're wanting to assert your own authority, because that's what's happening. You want to be in charge. And I know we had talked about maybe going out to eat, but we're not going out to eat for whatever reason tonight. No one's in trouble, and you just have to accept that. Or something came up. Life happens. Yes, we had this plan. We were going to do a fun family activity. Life has happened, son, and we're not able to do that tonight. Is there, is there a growing self-control? Um, are we, as parents, we, we reasonable and forbearing. I mean, disappointments in life are hard for us as grown-ups. They're certainly hard for younger, um, younger boys and girls, too. But there, there, there needs to be a growing display of self-control we're still looking for ordinary obedience. Um, one of the things that tends to happen as kids get older, happens with adults too, is we just become more sophisticated in our disobedience. True? When, when, you're, when you're three, your disobedience is not real sophisticated, is it? It might be the fit on the floor, it might be the, you know, shouting or you know, the angry outburst of, or something else. As adults, we're more sophisticated. We typically, generally speaking, don't flop out on the floor at Walmart. But we show our displeasure in other ways, don't we? 
we become skilled in things like passive-aggressive behavior. Um, kind of a, a work stoppage kind of thing. <laughs> or we, we you know, I don't have to explain it. You, you know your own devices. Um, some of them are displayed even in our, our marriages when things don't, we don't get our way. Uh, when a husband doesn't receive the, the affection from his wife that he thinks he ought to have and, and he responds by icing her out or doing something else and, and that goes both directions, doesn't it? So is there a, an emphasis on self-control, of, uh, on obedience? An emphasis on work ethic? See, by the time, and I'll say more about this in a few moments, but we, we want to see an increasing degree of responsibility. Because our kids, they're not on a cruise ship. And, and our kids need to understand that. You know, life is not a cruise ship. And so if you think at eight that you're going to sit around and be served, well, that's not the way the world works, is it? And it's not the example that our great shepherd set. The Lord Jesus did not come into the world to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we want to be able to demonstrate and to teach our sons and daughters that this life is a life of work, of responsibility, and that we ought to, we ought to desire that. We ought to count it as, as a blessing and a privilege from God when he gives us responsibilities. And sometimes for our little guys, that starts with the responsibility of picking up your own toys. Mommy will help you, but you need to pick up your toys. As the kids get older, you know, I remember by, when I was 11 or 12, my mom sort of ceremonially brought in a laundry basket into my room and said, from thenceforth, thou shalt do your own laundry. I wasn't too excited about it at the time. And she told me, look, when you, if you're busy with school, you've got an exam and you need some help, you let me know, and I will wash your jeans for you. But don't come to me on a Monday morning and say, Mom, I don't have any clean jeans. You need to take responsibility for that. And so she expected, and I grumbled some, but I did it. And then when I went off to college, I was thankful that I didn't have to wear pink socks like some of my friends, because I knew how to sort. I knew how to do laundry. And so I had these, these skills. I'd already taken on the responsibility years before some of my peers were learning those things. That's just one silly example, but... There's a reason that our kids can't begin, at least at a, at a minimum, caring for themselves and then growing in their capacity and, in fact, their desire to serve other people in their home. Isn't that a crazy concept? You live here. You can serve other people. You can do things that would benefit somebody other than yourself. Kind of a Christian ethic, isn't it? So an increasing responsibility. And... and particularly responsibilities that are rooted in the home. My, my conviction here, and I think I derive this from the Scriptures, is that we need desperately to be cultivating affections homeward for both our boys and our girls. Our culture is screaming at our girls in particular to despise the home. To think of the home as a place of no respect or disrespect. And we as parents need affirmatively, proactively, early and often, need to be cultivating something completely opposite of that. Why? Because the scriptures present to us something completely opposite of that. But not just for our girls. 
Men, you know the struggles of your own heart, and you know men that would do almost anything they can to be out of their home, who don't want the responsibilities of parenting, of housework and chores, and they would rather hire people or you know, go pursue a hobby rather than be at home. We, we need to cultivate a, a sense of responsibility that's homeward, that has a homeward orientation. Not because necessarily, you know, every son and daughter will be working in their homes or officing out of their homes or anything like that, but that where, what's the orientation of their heart? Do they recognize that this, this domestic sphere for both boys and girls is God-given and vital? Not only for our Christian witness, but even just in the common kingdom. We need strong families. We need strong homes. We need well-ordered homes. And, and I think... I'm not a prophet or son of a prophet, but you've heard me say this before. I, I think that the evangelistic opportunities that we will have as Christians in just ordinary, imperfect homes are going to be outstanding. You know, you go back to Mayberry, and it wasn't phenomenal for a mom and dad to sit down with their family and have dinner together and maybe have a, a guest over, a, a, a stranger or a neighbor, because everybody had a mom and a dad and a table and, and a family increasingly that's not the case, is it? So even just your regular, imperfect, very ordinary family with a husband and wife laboring to love one another in the Lord, serve one another, raise their children in the, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, have children who are reasonably well-behaved, what a witness that could be for us. What an opportunity for us. Now, that's only something about instruction. Again, I, I, I commend you to go back to Proverbs 2 and 3. Well, all of Proverbs, but the Proverbs 2 and 3 in particular is where this, this starts with kind of a framework and, and some, some ideas for us to think about. What should be the priorities in our instruction to our children? And, and we as parents need to not lean on our own understanding or lean on the culture's understanding or lean on the habits that we grew up with. But lean upon the Scriptures, lean upon God's understanding. Acknowledge Him in all of our ways. Especially in our parenting. Now, a couple of the passages that we looked at last week, we looked at more, but I'm not going to repeat them all, but here with respect to correction. Again, Paul with adults in a Christian context, in a church, said, I'm warning and I'm teaching everyone. With the end that they would be presented mature in Christ. So we, we think about instruction, but we also need, still need to think about correction. You know, in that, that middle years of 8 to 15, when you were 8 to 15, did you need anybody to correct you for anything? All the time, didn't you? We needed that. I needed much more than I got. Proverbs 13, 24, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Now, I said last week, the rod is not metaphor, or two weeks ago, the rod is not metaphorical. The rod is speaking of physical chastisement. We might call it spanking. It, that, that's, that's the idea here. Now, that is not the only physical correction, but it is a key one that the Bible commends to us. The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 29, 15. 
And here we see the, the twin necessities of, of recognizing rod and rebuke. This is clearly corrective, are necessary. And then a child left to himself. This is the absence of formal training, of instruction. And so the, the child who is, in some ways, feral, Scripture says, brings shame to his mother. Here's some principles, and this is, some of these we, we set, I set before you last time, but again, earlier equals less severe. The earlier we begin these things, and the more consistent we are early on, the less, um, can I say, force needs to be exerted to get submission. You know, I've, I've, I've said, mentioned, uh, the boys and I are, are doing jiu-jitsu a couple times a week, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and it's, it's really been fascinating to me some of the life lessons that come from jiu-jitsu. When you're going up against someone who's very experienced, a black belt or a brown belt, they're actually more gentle. You think, well, they would hurt you worse. They're actually the best to go against as a newbie because they know exactly how much force to exert. They're not overdoing it. They haven't ripped your shoulder out of its socket. They're actually able to apply a precise amount of force. Well, as parents, we're learning that on the fly, aren't we? And, and, and most of us are not black belts as parents. Um, we're, 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 we're somewhere in that spectrum, but we're not black belts. We're, we're learning and we're growing. And so we're going to get this wrong from time to time, and we've got to be willing to, to repent to our children and say, I was too severe. I was too harsh. And other times, I wasn't severe enough, son. And, and I, will you forgive me that I didn't deal with this as it ought to have been dealt with? Communicate expectations when possible. And again, with the youngest kids, it's, sometimes it's hard to communicate exactly your expectations. The emphasis is more on correction. But as they grow, we're wanting to be able to tell them, this is what you expect. And maybe, okay, we're going to, we're going to church today. And, rem and remember, we talked last time, this is, this is how Daddy expects you to, to behave. This is what Daddy says I want you to do. I don't want you to go in this room. I want you to stay here and giving those kinds of Instructions, and we can th that can happen really very young, can't it? Or also, we go we're going to uh, over to someone's house for dinner. We're trying to set expectations ahead of time. Now you stay close to Daddy. This is a family we don't know very well, and so I want you to stay close with us. I don't want you to be in a bedroom with 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 other kids when we're not able to see you. And so you're able to just talk about those things ahead of time, and help prepare our kids. Still working on this principle that obedience is not negotiable. Um, you, you, it's, it's really easy as, as parents, isn't it, to kind of, you kind of get into something and then you, you, it's almost like you come to your senses and go, wait a minute, I'm negotiating with the terrorists. This shouldn't have been a negotiation or discussion. Um, I, I said no like 45 minutes ago and we're still talking. That, that's, that's on me now, not on my son or daughter. And so we've got to recognize obedience is not negotiable. We're, 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 not, we're, not, we're not persuading mom and dad which direction we want to go. We, we want to be forbearing, we want to be reasonable, but that's not something that we're going to negotiate. Again, same, same principle applies, discipline in private whenever possible. Uh, 
there are, you know, the other thing is when we get to these middle years, you don't have to discipline necessarily with the same immediacy or urgency. So when, when the child is a year old, um, the whole concept of, well, just wait, you know, wait till your dad gets home and we'll deal with that when he gets home. Well, that, that may be harder to deal with because they don't understand time or th- there's a forgetfulness of exactly what happened. So you, you have to deal with an infraction pretty quickly. But by the time a little boy or girl is 8, 10, 12, I mean, the discipline can be deferred because they understand. Okay, this, this was what, you know, basically... It's almost like mom's given the indictment. You've already been indicted. <laughs> the judge will be home at 6, and, and you will appear before the bench at 6 p.m. Um, and, and I say that tongue in, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but, but there's maybe you're in public, and, 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 a, and a behavior or an attitude is demonstrated, and you can just very discreetly say, we're going to deal with this when we get home. But your behavior or your attitude or the words that you use are not appropriate and you'll be corrected for that when we get home. And so there's, there's an ability to do that, so you still want to discipline in private whenever possible. As parents, admit and confess our own wrongdoing when sin is involved, but we also want to require this of, of our children and get them in this sort of habit. How much easier would it have been for me? I didn't, I didn't come to faith in Christ until I was in my late 20s. And I, I was not ordinarily compelled to confess sin or wrongdoing in my home. I was allowed to make excuses. I was allowed to justify myself. I was allowed to blame shift. I was allowed to to avoid responsibility for certain things that I did or said, or things that I failed to do or say. What a profit it will be to our children if they don't get away with that. And so from a very young age, they're conditioned to say, I I, I acted in violence and that was wrong. I I struck my brother and that is objectively wrong. And I have to acknowledge that. Uh, I, I mean, who likes to admit they're wrong? No one. But it's also a skill, isn't it? It takes practice. And, and it's one of those things that I, if you do it, that pride muscle kind of gets exercised or stretched out or something, and, and you're able to do it more humbly. And so we have to give our kids that opportunity to learn this on an ongoing basis when they're younger, just simply to say, I lied, and that was wrong. And, and as a parent, doing everything we can, to, in a sense, to secure that confession that acknowledgement that wrongdoing has taken place. Apply physical punishment as a corrective. Now I want to say something briefly about this. Um, I'll I'll come back to it in just a moment. Along the lines of the principles of of correction, no striking of a child in anger. And and particularly as, as a child grows older, again, the concept of we can delay discipline. And if we need to delay that until I've had a breather as dad, then that's what needs to happen. Or mom needs a breather before discipline takes place, before there's a correction done. 
absolutely no striking of a child anywhere other than his or her bottom, maybe a hand. Um, I think I think the Lord has given a, an appropriate place to apply the rod. It's well padded, and uh, it, it, it provides a suitable um, negative consequence with no permanent harm. And, and that's our goal. Our goal is not harm, ever. Our goal is never, ever, ever to injure, but to correct. And to correct with, with a redemptive hope in mind. And I mentioned before, you know, with respect to correction, make the spanking count or don't do it. Um, this, and I've tried to clarify some things that, that are of my opinion, and I went back and forth whether to you know, put an asterisk here saying my opinion, because I think it's more than just my opinion. I think one of the ways that, that when Paul says, do not exasperate fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, one of the ways that I've seen that happen is by a sense of fake discipline. And here's what I mean by that. If it's the just the half-hearted pat on a diapered bottom, or even after the diapers are gone, you know, you have blue jeans on, and it's just a, a a hand on the bottom, the kid's gonna look at you and and maybe not think this consciously, maybe not say it, but they're gonna think if you can pretend discipline, then I can pretend obedience. If you're not serious about this, then why should I be? And so there, there is, uh, if, if, I think the spanking ought to happen, but if, it, if it's not going to happen correctly, then you may be better off finding a different way of correcting. Um, I think there's a greater potential to exacerbate a child. Again, I'm not saying to find another way. I'm saying if you won't do it right, then perhaps find another way. Do not allow angry crying or screaming. This becomes even more more important as we get into these these middle years. When you're physically disciplining a child, and and if there's a resistance, moms in particular, you've got an 8, 9, 10-year-old boy that you can't control enough even to administer discipline, well, you got a problem. And and you don't want it to be the case that this is only going to happen if dad is here, because dad is you know, bigger, physically stronger, if there's not an unwillingness to submit to mom's authority and mom's discipline, well, that, that indicates that there's something else going on that hasn't been addressed. Agreed? If it's a young man who will not submit to his mother a just, in just correction, there's a problem there. Whether it's physical correction or her verbal correction, and that becomes more important. There's something that happens. Um... I think particularly with boys, well, maybe not particularly with boys, but in a particular way with boys, when their eyeballs get farther from the floor than their mother's eyeballs. I see some of the men nodding, because you remember from, you, you, were, you were a teenage boy. And, and you begin to think, I'm smarter. Um, mom doesn't understand. There are things that I, that I deal with that mom doesn't know about. And 
you know, dad may understand more, but mom doesn't really understand this. Therefore, I don't really want to submit to this. And dads, that's going to be on us. Son or daughter that will not acknowledge his or her mother's true, legitimate, biblical authority, the sheriff may have to remind him or her that mom's words bear the full weight of the law, just as much as dad's. And then, of course, we want to affirm our love and affection for the child. Now, thinking about correction specifically in these middle years, the rod does remain an instrument of correction, but here's, and this is my opinion, I think it ought to diminish as our sons and daughters mature. And in some ways, this is, this is even a litmus test in a way. If we find ourselves, the chart's not up here anymore, but in the middle of those middle years or later, and we're still dependent upon a spanking in order to get the right behavior out of a 12-year-old, something else is deficient. Uh, we, we, we may need some additional help. Because again, the, the, what ought to be happening is the prominence and the success, frankly, of formative instruction increases. And the necessity of physical discipline should diminish. So I can't say this as a law, okay? I'm not saying this as thus saith the Lord. This is my opinion. But I'm of the opinion that the rod will have ceased completely by the close of these middle years. Again, it's an opinion. Uh, the, the idea of a even 14, 15, 16-year-old being spanked, not saying it's never appropriate, but that ought to be exceedingly rare. Um, and particularly if, if we've been faithful as parents in those younger years and at the early part of the middle years, it's reasonable for us to, to, to hope and expect that we're not having to do that anymore. That we have maybe other tools in our tool chest that we're now using more frequently. Doesn't mean correction is gone. But again, the more that a child has aged and matured, the more sophisticated we can be with correction too, can't we? And then we can get creative as parents. So there are other forms of correction that need to be developed. And I put in here parental creativity. There are all kinds of things by which we can correct a son or a daughter, can't we? And withholding privileges. Sometimes it's missing a meal. You tell a 13-year-old boy, you ain't having supper tonight. Well, he'll think he's going to die. Um, I think of a, of a scene from the... That, that great work of cultural art, Beverly Hillbillies. If you haven't seen it, that's okay. But at one point, Jethro, who's six foot four, 250, laying in bed, decides he's taking his life. Girl's broken his heart, he's just, I'm going to end it all. Well, how are you, and, and Uncle Jetta, how are you going to do that? Well, I'm starving myself. I figure I only got minutes to live. I've been, I hadn't eaten all day. Well, that's kind of the attitude of most teenage boys, isn't it? I haven't eaten in two hours. I might just starve. Well, maybe with your belly growling as you go to bed, 
you'll recall that maybe next time I ought to listen to my mom. And so there are other ways of correction. So again, we, we, we had to be creative sometimes uh, with respect to, to correction. Sometimes that's a withhold of, of a privilege. Sometimes that's additional chores. Um, we also took a page out of the, the military's playbook, running laps, push-ups. Um, we, we developed a, a system at one point where Gina was at a point where it kind of felt like I, I, I've, I've, had, I've laid down some of my arms. What, what, do I, what do I deploy here to correct when, particularly if there's been schoolwork that hasn't been turned in? or some duty that was, that was not paid attention to and not done. And so rather than that becoming a source of conflict, I just sat down and wrote out, here's, okay, here's kind of a chart. We have a kind of a track in our yard, and one lap is an eighth of a mile. And so, okay, first infraction, it's, it's 10 laps. And so that Gina could then be, Kind of like the police officer who pulls you over. The police officer doesn't have to get mean or nasty. Doesn't have to, to yell at you or rebuke you. He says, sir, you're doing 65 and a 50. Here's your ticket. You go to the website or you go to the judge. There's a predetermined fine schedule. And if, you're not, if you think you've been unjustly accused, you can see the judge and work that out. Have a nice day. And then the way we deployed it is if, the, the nice thing about saying something like that, it's 10 laps. But moment, it's 20 now. Do I hear 30? Well, you, you, you tend to get, not always, but you tend to get a compliance. Or it's 50 push-ups. Well, I don't think that's fair. Try 100. See, the math's really simple, isn't it? And so things like that, where it's tangible. Um, I've seen, we've even done, where... You know, you've heard of the swear jar or something like that, where there's, there's a fine. Here's a particular behavior that's repetitive, you know. I don't have to, I'm not going to, there's not going to be yelling, lecture, nothing. Just, you owe me five bucks. Here's the thing. You, you want something that's, I prefer, again, this is in the area of opinion, right? Not thus saith the Lord. I like things that are tangible. Laps are tangible. Push-ups are tangible. Dollars in a jar are tangible. But the other thing is you can watch them accumulate. It's like, huh, that habit's dying hard, isn't it? We got a gallon jar that's nearly full. So there's a consequence to your, to your behavior. That's the other lesson that you're learning in life. That your actions have consequences. Sometimes painful ones. So as I said earlier, my, my opinion is the, the rod ceases during this, these middle years. Yeah, Matthew. Well, related to the next bullet point too is, in my opinion, regeneration, a, a bona fide profession of faith, changes this, this metric drastically. Because now... I'm dealing with a son or daughter who is indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. I ought to, by faith, be able, excuse me, to make an appeal to that son or daughter 
of a different kind entirely than the kind of appeal that I make to an unregenerate son or daughter. So, to your question. I'm hesitant to, to, to think of a specific thing. Number one, I, I struggle to think about a specific thing. But I'm also hesitant to say, oh, well, David said in this circumstance you should... Uh, if there is a, let's say it's a 15-year-old boy, 15-year-old girl, unregenerate, there's a stubbornness, a refusal, there's an unwillingness to submit themselves to the rule of the house. You know, in, in the Old Testament, we have a precedent. What did they do to a rebellious son or daughter in the Old Testament that would not submit to their parents? The parents were to take them to the city gate, take them to the elders of the city, and say to them, my son or daughter will not submit. Now, the, the text gives us specifics. They were often drunks and wouldn't work. They were to be stoned taken outside the camp and stoned so that, and there's a reason for it, so that the rest of Israel would fear. Now, there's a parallel with respect to a regenerate son or daughter, one who's made a profession of faith, been baptized, especially has become a church member. Well, now you have two spheres of authority potentially at work. And I have, uh, I don't remember how many times, but it's been more than one, more than a handful, five fingers worth, of times I've sat down with a teenage boy or girl, I've done both, in the presence of their parents as a pastor, and have said, there is a pattern of disobedience in your home which actually puts you now under the auspices of church authority because you are a church member. Now we're at a Matthew 18 kind of situation. You've been warned, you, you, you've persevered and persisted in this sin, and it, it, it may be that if you will not repent, that this matter goes before the whole church. And you talk about a 16-year-old boy with eyes like this, or a young girl. And wait a minute, other people will know my stuff? It doesn't have to be. But there is, you're under authority. I'm under authority. We're all under authority. And if you will not recognize that, then, then there is a consequence. Now, in the case of an unregenerate one, I think about some things that, could potentially very much disrupt a home. At 15 or 16, you can't, I mean, legally, you can't emancipate that child. You can't turn them out. In the state of Texas, um, and I just learned this recently with a particular case, um, a child has to be at least 17 and has to have a high school diploma or a GED before they can be emancipated in Texas by law. So I can't just... You can't say, well, you're kicking you out. You can't, legally. But if you have a son or daughter that will not, I mean, just basic obedience, will not comply, I think there's a possibility that if, if other things especially are not working, I mean, th that, that still is a tool that I'm not willing to throw out of the bag entirely. But as a general rule, and again, my opinion, I want to be very careful about that. This is my opinion. The rod really should cease during this time. And, and I think that really should cease naturally. Not because, okay, we've made, a, we've made a law that after this age, nobody gets spanked anymore. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But there ought to be a diminishing need for that. Does, that. does that help? Okay. Now, we talked with the young kids about common battlegrounds. What are 
some common battlegrounds in these middle years. Entertainment, toys, depending on that where they are in that spectrum, um, whether 8 or 15, the, the, it, the entertainment, things like you know, video games or something else, TV. Maybe the biggest of all is peers, friends. And really a fundamental question, who gets to decide who their peers are? Who gets to determine who their friends are? What's the world's answer? Well, they do. They're autonomous. Hopefully, what's the Christian, an- Christian parent's answer? <laughs> Not on my watch. Not on my watch. Um, so as, as, as parents, may the Lord give us wisdom for these things. We, we don't want to deny our children the, the, the practice and the opportunity of cultivating true friendships. Uh, hopefully, we can prioritize that even through our local church. Um, and help our sons and daughters define peer by more than just their own birth date plus or minus a year. There's no reason that your teenage sons and daughters can't have genuine friendships with adult members of our congregation. With wisdom and and prudence and all those things, of course, but but also we've tried to encourage our children always look ahead and look back. Don't, don't, Don't confine your peers to your own immediate age group, but the ones that are older than you, the ones that are wiser than you, the ones that are more experienced with you, cultivate relationships with them. Go sit with Mr. So-and-so at lunch. Go sit with the brothers of the church at lunch. Go sit with the sisters at at church and ask good questions. And then look back. Look back and look at kids that are three or four or five years younger than you and make friends with them. Um, Remember what it was like when you were eight and really wish you had somebody that would talk to you that was... Because when you're eight, the 13-year-old seems like, wow, that's a really old kid. Uh, School. School work. For those of you who homeschool, that uh, school can be a constant battleground. Uh, Learning to be diligent with the basic things. Um, I mentioned, I think in the last session or the session before, I can't remember which, my favorite, one of my favorite passages is Jeremiah 12. Verse 5, where Jeremiah's kind of shaking his fist a little bit at the Lord. And the Lord responded to Jeremiah, If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, how will you contend with horses? And trying to, to, to impress upon our kids, especially in these middle years, you know, the responsibility of turning in your history assignment is actually relatively small compared to the kinds of responsibilities you will have later in life. Diligence and work ethic, common battlegrounds. Did you clean up your room? Yeah, I cleaned up my room. You walk in there, what did you do? This isn't clean. You, you, here's the standard, you haven't done that. Well, it's all clean until you open the closet, and you need a hard hat to open the closet. Or, I've unloaded the dishwasher. There's half the dishwasher still here on the counter. It didn't get put up. And so, are we working on diligence and work ethic? What, what else? I have question marks here. What else, in your own experience, from your own recollection, what are other battlegrounds other, so you as a parent can anticipate? In these middle years, what are some of the battlegrounds? Sibling rivalry. Eh, glad that's not in my house. <laughs> and I'm a liar, too. I'm a liar, too. You're, I know, I know. I appreciate you bringing that up for others' benefit. 
Clothing. Still, yes. Yes. I, I almost said, particularly with girls, but that's not true, is it? <laughs> yeah. Hobbies, yeah. Yeah, kind of in that same entertainment. And, but, you know, sometimes kids can be kind of a one-track mind and get involved in this hobby, and then everything else is forsaken. Because all the attention, it's all they can think about, right? Anything else that's kind of a battleground venture. Okay, yeah, yeah. And so again, in that area of self-control, learning how to, how to, how do I subdue my flesh? How do I deal with losing? <laughs> Matthew? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, as parents, being able to articulate those expectations and enforcing them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Sure. No, yeah. Well, yes. Yes, and that reminds me, and I, I, I meant to have it in my, in my notes. Increasingly in this battleground area are electronic devices. Um, social media particularly if they have peers that are involved in those things. Um, now again, this is my opinion. There's no, I can't think of a good reason for any child in these middle years to be on social media. I can't think of one good reason. And I can think of a thousand and one bad reasons. I, I can't think of a single reason. Now, in, in our house, again, this is just, this is my opinion in our practice. In our house, a phone is a tool. If one of my sons came to me and said, Dad, I need a chainsaw. Okay. Well, chainsaw is a wonderful tool. It's a productive tool. If you know how to use it, know how to use it responsibly, and you have a reason for it. So what are you going to do with a chainsaw? Well, I'm going to cut down trees. We don't have any trees that I want you to cut down. So no, you can't have a chainsaw. But we'll give them a phone. A phone is a tool. It's an instrument. It can be very productive. It can be useful. But it's not a toy. And we, we've just... Until you have what, you know, those things called a job and responsibility for which that tool might be a help to you, you don't need a phone. Or there are very limited use of certain community devices for school. We use... We use kind of some old iPhones for Audible and for Sherman Audio and things like that. I don't have a phone number. There's all kinds of restrictions on them, and I can lock them down, and at a push of a button, I can stop them all. But they're not just, nobody has their own phone. And so again, that's, a, that's an opinion, but we are called, go back to Proverbs 2 and 3, and, and, and just run a brand new iPhone through Proverbs 2 and 3 for a 15-year-old. Make an honest look at that and say, does this make sense? Is this wise? But dad, all my friends have one. I don't care. So, imperatives, I'm going to go pretty quickly to the last couple slides. 
We've looked at the imperatives. I, I want to provoke you to think about some opportunities. Um, this first one, again, is it's also an imperative, but I, I want us to see this not as just a bare duty as parents, but, but a wonderful privilege to begin to, to inculcate and to, to shape our children in spiritual priorities. And even in these middle years, to begin to help them to think about what does it mean when the Lord Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things that, that he knows you need will be added to you. What does that look like? And long before a son or daughter is 18 and thinking about college, how do they apply that vocationally? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Well, I'm really excited about this this job, but it's going to require me to work every Lord's Day. Is that seeking first the kingdom? Is that born out of 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 a true faith that God is going to provide for your needs physically? And you're going to seek him. Well, here's a relationship. This is, here's a young woman. Here's a young man that I, I, I'm really attracted to. Seek first the kingdom. He's really cute, but he's not a godly young man. He's no interest in things of God. I really like her. She's smart. She's pretty. But is she a godly woman? Are you seeking first the kingdom? We have an opportunity as parents to shape the affections and the attitudes and even the desires of our children. And I think this is a neglected opportunity. I think sometimes as parents, in fact, I saw a, a thread just yesterday, um, social media, talking about um, particularly young women getting into their 30s and then bemoaning the fact that they're not married. And, but even more than that, men and women getting into their 60s and 70s and lamenting the fact that they don't have grandchildren. That was the specific threat. And then realizing, yes, but you never, you never shaped the desires and affections of your children in such a way that they would want families and children. Because you never spoke well of those things. As a mom, you grumbled about your housework and about the, the household sphere and about how unjust it was. And you imbibed these, these feminist ideals and you spouted them off to your sons and daughters. No wonder they're not interested in the domestic sphere. To your sons, you talked about international travel and taking on the world and doing all these things and you never talked to them about being a godly, faithful, consistent father and husband and about how wonderful that is in the sight of God. We have an opportunity as parents to shape those affections of our children. I remember growing up, I had a lot of friends that were into horror movies. We would like to get together and watch, you know, Friday the 13th or whatever it was. This was the late 80s. Um, Not exactly the golden age of cinema, right? I never... I was never interested. I think I saw one or two, and I was like, this is stupid. And you know why? My mother, proactively and verbally, talked about how foolish and silly those kinds of things were. And I was crazy enough to believe it. Shaped those affections. Um, 
and and so that's just one silly example. But but there were there were kinds of music that I just didn't like hearing because it was it was presented to me as in, in such a way that this isn't good. And there was a sense of morality and at least a sense of wholesomeness. And so I was my mom was a English and literature teacher. I was introduced to good books, good literature. And I had those affections cultivated where I'd like to read. I'd like to enter into to good stories and literature. Those, those affections were shaped in me, and they stuck. Um, we have an opportunity to, to speak into those things proactively, affirmatively. To speak well of God's distinct plan for both sexes. Do you think that's a message that's needed in our day? I mean, I don't have to persuade you of that, but I do want to remind you of the, of the opportunity and privilege that you have as parents, that we all have as parents, to begin to shape those things. And now what does that look like? I heard somebody, this wasn't original to me, I don't remember where I heard it or I would give credit, but this man was, in, was speaking, he said, you know, we spent a lot of time, and rightly so, as parents telling our sons, for example, don't look at that. Turn your eyes away from the, the adulterous woman with smooth words in various forms, physical or digital. But he asks the question, but do we ever tell our sons what they ought to look at? Sure, true beauty is. And to be able to tell our sons, you see that young woman? Now, she's too old for you. But do you see her? Do you see how she speaks to her father? Do you see how she speaks to her mother? Do you see how she serves here? So that's, that's the kind of woman you want to find someday to speak to our daughters. Do you see how uh, brother so-and-so at church, do you see how hard, work, how hard he works? Do you see how he leads his family? Do you hear him pray? That's the kind of man you want. That's what you're looking for. And, to, and to, to begin to put those affections in place. And some of us could have been spared some heartache had we had those kinds of things provoked in us early on, right? And so we want to not, not only deal with the negatives of don't do this, but what should you do instead? And not in a, uh, an, Im, an improper way, but with our sons and daughters. This is what's attractive. Not the outward beauty, which is going to fade anyway at some point, but, but the inward beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit. The, the inward handsomeness, if I could say, of a man with a job and a plan and willingness to sacrifice and take on responsibility. And so to be able to say to our sons, you're looking for a woman like your mother, who, who is, is faithful in her home and, and willing to, to, to pour herself out for the sake of her family. Son, you don't want the loud woman, the overly ambitious woman. Daughter, you don't want the self-centered man, the loud man the tyrant. That's not what you're looking for in a godly husband. And, and you can work that out. You're reasonable people. You can think through those things. But, but I put that before you to, to hopefully encourage us. There's a great deal of power and influence that we have as parents. We can use it for good or ill, but we have a lot of it. We also, with this respect to vocation, marriage, a spouse, music, entertainment, and, and again, many of these things, as the expression goes, are, are caught more than they're taught. But are we, are we exemplifying those things? Are we speaking well about the institution of marriage? 
do, 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 do the children growing up in your home come out with a favorable view of marriage? Or do they hear, like I heard growing up, over and over again, go and have fun, live your life, do some other things, and then get married? Providentially, I still married very young. But are we, are we, what are we cultivating? Because these things are not neutral. And, and, and whether we, we can, you can shut off internet, you can close, you know, not have a TV, you can pretend that you're isolating your children, but they're going to hear these things from the world. This is the air that we breathe. It's almost a, a, an airborne virus. <laughs> Feminism, all these kinds of things, all these isms. Are we speaking well to our children about the blessing of church? Or do what our children hear from us are grumblings about our church? Are they more likely to hear us find faults? Because every church has them. We've got plenty of them. If you, if you need help finding those, I can help you. But the, we, we all have faults. Every church is going to have faults. Do we spend the time talking about those more than we talk about the blessings that God has given to us? through our brothers and sisters. Our family, do we, do we speak of the blessing of family? Or do our children grow up thinking they're a burden that, frankly, as parents, we would kind of wish would be done with? We're just counting down the days so you turn 18 where we can put your stuff on the curb and, and move on with our real life. Do we speak well of children? Are we helping them to think about their vocation? Opportunities. Further, help our sons and daughters assess their own skills and talents and interests. I'll come back and expand upon that idea in the next session when we think about the, that nearing to launch stage. But let's don't wait until that stage. We have an opportunity from our youngest, our youngest kids. Um, I can say this because I know it won't embarrass J. Michael, but watching him by the time he was 9, 10, 11, 12, I mean, he just his brain was just clearly mechanical. I mean, it was obvious to us. He would just soon take something apart and put it back together and do anything. And so we were able to, okay, let's, let's kind of steer him that direction. We've seen the same thing with, with, with Andrew, something very similar. He loved to build, he loved to construct. And so, well, you know, we kind of evaluate your skills and your abilities and the opportunities that are here. You've ever thought about plumbing. It, it's like, like Legos with water going through it, you know, and um, been good at it. He's, he's enjoyed it. So there are, there are things that we can do as parents to help them think about, this is the way God has given, this is how God has gifted you. You know, the Puritans recovered a doctrine that had long been lost, the doctrine of vocation. And the idea of vocation in the Middle Ages was primarily, well, you're called to be a monk or a priest or a nun, something clerical, clergy, but in terms of the blacksmith, that's not really a calling. That's just what you do to eat. But the reformers came back around and said, no, that's not right. We read in our Bibles that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. Whatever your hand finds to do, you do it with all your might. And so there was a recovery of a sense of this is how in God's providence he's called me to this. Maybe I'm a blacksmith because my father and his father before him were blacksmiths, but it's still in God's providence a calling, isn't it? And, and, to, and to think in those ways, 
So we want to help our sons and daughters assess their own skills, their own talents, their own interests. What kind of education, what kinds of study, what kinds of things can we help them with? Cultivate a desire to take on responsibility. Again, not only in our formative instruction, but by our example, do our children see us wanting to take on responsibility. You know, I was talking with my, my father-in-law this, this last week, and we were talking about this. He said, you know, I just, growing up, I didn't know a single man anywhere who wasn't working all the time, who wasn't working. Some of them, two jobs. That's what we did. He grew up around farmers who also had a day job, and they got in the combine, combine in the evenings. And, and it's my father-in-law, my father, men who have a strong work ethic. That's part of their generation. But my dad, actually it was, it was told at his retirement party, it was a good friend of my brother <clears throat> who had, was, lived with my parents for a while, for a, for a short season. And this, this man, he was 18, 19 at the time. Uh, my brother Stephen had already moved out. But his friend was staying at my parents, sleeping on the couch, and, my, and, and he told the story. He stood up and told the story at my dad's retirement. That he said, I, I, I was laying on the couch asleep. This was like 7 or 7.30 in the morning. Jay Shiflett comes through. He said, I heard the footsteps a couple different times. I heard him make coffee. Then he came in and kind of a kicked the back of the couch like this. Hey, you going to work? And Scott said, I rolled over. I don't feel good. <clears throat> I don't think I'm going to work today. <clears throat> and he said, Jay looked at me and said, in 40 years, I have called in three times. One for the birth of each of my three sons. That's it. Ever. My dad didn't know they gave sick days. <clears throat> and that was just his, his, his mentality. And, and so we have an opportunity. That's, that's the soil that I grew up in. I didn't know anything other than hard work. And so are we cultivating those kinds of things with our sons and daughters? Is there a concept of, you know, I have it here in quotes because I've said it many, many times in our home, work before play. It's fine. I have no problem with recreation. I have no problem with you unwinding and going out and doing whatever you want to do. But take care of your responsibilities first. Duty before play. You had a... And that's good. Uh, basically, don't, don't be afraid to customize an education based on a child's bent. I'm going to say something more about that in just a moment. But under cultivating a desire to take on more responsibility, um, this can take on something as very simple as making their own peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I mean, you're old enough to make your own lunch. Uh, I mean, by the time Calvin was, I don't know, six, seven, he was, you know, he's our chief egg maker. You want a fried egg in the morning for breakfast? He's your man. And so learning how to do those things, even at a, at a fairly young age, learning to take on those responsibilities, not just for himself, but... Every Lord's Day morning, Calvin fixes me breakfast. And, and I, I'm thankful for that. Knows, has the skills, knows how to do that. And of course, that will serve him well in his own household. Um, he won't starve. He knows how to cook. So uh, 
we, we've made it so that our, our sons know how to, how to cook, how to sew, how to iron a shirt. Our daughters know how to work in the yard and run a power tool. I mean, we're, th- those are not sex-dependent or gender-dependent. Learning how to care for others. So again, starting in your home. Kind of that principle that Jeremiah, if you've run with the footmen and they've wearied you, how will you contend with horses? If you can't give yourself in service to the people who are related to you, the people that you love the most and who love you in your own home, how are you ever going to serve a stranger? So learning how to care and serve others. Things like home maintenance. Uh, I mean, our, our youngest kids can start to learn how to pick up trash and just pick up things. And then as they get a little older, how to drag that trash can out to the curb and, and take on those kinds of responsibilities. Sometimes we feel like, well, they're too little. They, they got a whole life ahead of them to work. It, it, we can demonstrate to them by our own actions that work is not a burden. Work is a gift that God has given to us. Praise God for the health, the strength that we have. To, son, thank you. That, that You ought to thank God that he's given you the muscles to be able to put the trash bag up in the can now. A year ago, you couldn't do that. Praise God, he's causing you to grow. He's building muscles in you. Go, go, go demonstrate those things. Now, lastly, here's my opinion. Don't be afraid to discriminate in your home. Here's what I mean by that. Gina mentioned education, the ability to tailor stuff. Don't think, well, I made this one go all the way through calculus, so they all have to go through calculus. Maybe not. Maybe they're a good reason. <laughs> I got the look like somebody just turned the crank on the, the big screw. And, you know. <laughs> well, I remember I was probably about 10 when I got my first BB gun. I had a brother that was two years younger than me. And I was just, I had been after my parents for, I don't know how long, um, probably longer than the little boy in the Christmas story. I've been wanting a BB gun. And I finally, I saved up, they finally let me, pun intended, pull the trigger and get the BB gun. Well, about a month later, they let my brother, who was two years younger than me, get a BB gun. And I'll, y'all, I can still remember, I'm 51 years old and I remember vividly how furious I was. Not because they took my BB gun away. I still had it. But because Stephen got one two years earlier than I did. And I was furious. But you know what? My parents were not wrong. They discriminated. I was the oldest. Stephen had the benefit of growing up with an older brother, and we were similar levels of maturity. And we both could do that together. My parents recognized, we can discriminate. It doesn't have to, everything doesn't have to be even Stephen. And so whether it's educational choices, whether it's things that, that, you know, we didn't give this privilege to this one. You know, this one was driving at 16, the other one wasn't until 18. Okay, was there a good reason for that? Maybe, maybe so. Um, they're also, we can discriminate between our boys and girls. I don't know if you've heard this, but there are some who say they're exactly the same. Boys and girls are always the same. Um, I don't think that's a scriptural notion. And, and that doesn't mean that, we're, that everything is different. But 
just as again a, kind of a, an example of this, as our kids got older, when J. Michael first got his driver's license and started driving, he had kind of like I did. He had a 30-day reprieve before his first car insurance bill was due. Emily started driving. It wasn't until much later. Um, he was going to have the responsibility as a husband and a provider and needed to get into that habit. Uh, Emily was going to be in the role of, of, a, of, of, of a homemaker with someone else making that provision and having to be a good steward of that. And so we treated those differently. Now, maybe that was the right call, maybe it wasn't, but we were not afraid to say, we don't have to do things exactly the same. We exercise wisdom. So I'll close with that. We've definitely gone over an hour, but uh, provoking you to go back now, kind of, I w we don't have the time to go back now and reread Proverbs 2 and 3, but I exhort you to do that. Uh, think through those particular chapters, and, and don't, don't stop chapter 3 by all means, but read at least that, and then ask yourself, what are the things that God has given to us from His Word that ought to be priorities for us? And for some of you, you're not, you're not, your kids aren't to those middle years yet. You're, they're, they're younger. Well, never hurts to think ahead, does it? And to begin to think, okay, at, at two, maybe he's not ready for this. But by the time he's five or six, maybe he is. Maybe he doesn't wait till eight. And so thinking through those things, but also encouraging you as parents, even at, at a very um, basic level, to begin to speak about some of these things. Um, with respect to the, to the sin and wickedness, the, the age spread between our, our oldest and our youngest is 17 years. Well, I don't have to tell you that in 17 years, the last 17 years, a lot has changed, hasn't it? I mean, we, we just in our recent lifetime, we watched a very liberal presidential candidate in 2008 say that he was absolutely opposed to gay marriage, as an example. In the re-election term, he waffled a little bit, but still was, I believe, in, in the sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman. Now, even the most hardcore right-winger is not expected to say such a radical thing. Okay, now why, why do I even bring that, that up? We've had to have discussions with our younger two at younger ages of certain subject matter that we didn't have with the older ones until they were much older. I mean, the, the whole homosexual thing, the, the transgender stuff. Brothers and sisters, if we're not talking about those things preemptively and proactively, the world will get to our kids first. One of the advantages of working through the scriptures in our family worship and not avoiding certain uh, books or passages is that the scriptures speak about the, the, full, the, the, the full range of God's teaching on human sexuality, for example. You know, we don't have to be explicit. We don't have to be um, obscene. But we can, we can deal with the issues that God brings up. 
and you'll get sometimes some questions that you don't necessarily want to answer, but you're, you're, you're teaching your kids. I started to say earlier, and I think I interrupted myself. You teach them, the number one, that God has spoken to all these issues. But number two, you have the opportunity as a parent to say, I'm not embarrassed to speak with you, son, about anything. Or my daughter, I'm willing to have a conversation about anything that's on your mind, and we can reason together from the Scriptures. Because if we recoil in embarrassment when you get that question, because you're going through Leviticus, and you're, you go, Dad, what's that? Well, here's an opportunity. And we can communicate, not only with our words, but even just by our actions, that God's not embarrassed about your body. And you don't have to be embarrassed about that. There are ordinary natural processes that, that the Bible speaks about, that just life. And you get an opportunity to, to talk about that in just a, you know, an ordinary conversation. And, and not if, but when other questions come up. Or they've heard something from someone else. Wouldn't you much rather have the conversation going, hey, Mom, I, I heard this. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Or Dad, I heard about this. And I, I heard something on when I was at grandparents and the TV was on and I heard something about transgender something or other. What, what's that all about? Wouldn't you rather them ask you? Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't you rather them seek out you because you've already demonstrated that you're willing and able uh, to talk about the, the things of, of this world, the things that the Scriptures give to us, without condemning them from asking the question. Uh, it's not a bad question to say, you know, we're reading here in Leviticus, and this, this issue came up, and what, what is that about? And, okay, let's talk about it. You can give an age-appropriate answer, and sometimes you get to, from there, you just move on. And, and a year or so later, when you read through the same passage, the question may be more, it may be deeper, maybe more complex this time because there's growing maturity. But anyway, uh, the, the, the scriptures actually can help us provoke those conversations in, in a healthy way where we have God's word as our authority. We have his wisdom before us. Are there any, any final questions? I don't want it to run long, too, or much longer. It's already run long. All right. Okay. Well, let's pray and be dismissed. Father, we are thankful for your word. Thank you for your, the patience of your people and their forbearance with me. Um, we pray that you, you would bless us and encourage us as parents uh, to, walk after, to walk after your word, walk according to your wisdom and not our own, and help us to be examples to our children both in word and deed, of, of what godliness can look like, of what a humility and dependence upon you and your word looks like. Help us to, to teach our children and to teach ourselves at the same time by your Spirit, not to lean on our own understanding, but in all of our ways to acknowledge you and trust and believe that you will indeed make our path straight, that you will give us firm footing, that you will help us to build houses built on the, the, the hard rock of your word rather than the sinking sand, the shifting sands of, our, of this world. We thank you. 
uh, for You being the source of our wisdom, and we ask that we would drink deeply from the well of Your Word, aided by Your Spirit, uh, for Your glory and for our good and for the good of our children and their children. Amen.